Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics, life and the Trump presidency. And before we start this episode, I'd like to draw everyone's attention to our new Not the New York Times offer, which we're offering to encourage readers to subscribe to The Spectator's US edition, which is excellent. I edit it. Uh, And the reason we're running the Not the New York Times offer is because we are very unlike the New York Times. I don't know if you're aware of this, but the famous newspaper, uh, the most famous newspaper that America has, recently hounded out one of its best editors uh, because the paper had published a slightly controversial article. Uh, The paper's staff, and bizarrely many of its readers, now demand total conformity of opinion in the opinion pages. We think that's very boring, and we want to tell America that The Spectator is different. We are a magazine, not a newspaper, and we take a very different approach to journalism. We've been around longer than The Times, in fact, 23 years longer to be precise, and we encourage our writers to disagree with each other. We want arguments, and we want people to disagree. It makes for much better reading. We also try not to take ourselves too seriously, and unlike the grey lady, as the New York Times is known, we never confuse the serious with the dull. We're new to America, and we want Americans to know what we're all about, which is why we're offering this special Not the New York Times offer with 50% off the normal price. If you go to spectator.us forward slash not dash NYT dash, and you enter the code N-O-T-N-Y-T, you will get 50% off the Spectator's US edition. Please take up the offer. I'm joined today by Daniel McCarthy, who is editor of Modern Age and a columnist for the Spectator's US edition. And we're going to be asking, what does Jeff Sessions' loss in Alabama mean for Donald Trump, the Republican Party, and the election in November? Now, Dan, I'm going to give a sort of quick potted history of Jeff Sessions in the last few years. He was the first senator, the first major Republican figure to back Donald Trump, and his loyalty was rewarded uh, when he was made Attorney General. Things quickly turned sour when he recused himself from the Trump-Russia inquiry. Trump took this very badly and promptly sort of set about insulting him quite viciously on a regular basis on Twitter. Sessions then tried to go back to being senator for Alabama, what he had been before, and last night he lost to Tommy Tuberville in a Republican primary. So Tuberville will now be the candidate in November. I think what you said today was that Tuberville represented the cyborg Republican Party, and that the cyborg had beaten Sessions. What do you think that means for the party, for Trump, for the election? Well, the uh, dilemma that I think Donald Trump is facing is that he is, in one sense, the brand of the Republican Party now. Obviously, as president, he's the person who everyone identifies with the Republican Party as its leader and its public face. At the same time, however, the party is in some ways uh, quite similar to what it was before Donald Trump came on the scene in 2016. It's still a party which, you know, has to think twice before it commits itself to immigration restriction or to being opposed to free trade. The formerly pro-free trade and relatively easygoing attitude of Republicans towards immigration are still with the party. 
So you have this awkward fit between the Trump brand and the Republican Party brand. In 2016, Donald Trump ran against the Republican Party brand. But now that he's the leader of the party and he's running for re-election, he can't really do the same thing that he did four years ago. And so as a result, what you're seeing, I think, is this what I've called a cyborg that's half Donald Trump, half Republican Party machine. And the danger is that voters will kind of see the thing they like least in both sides of this apparatus. They'll see the controversy that attends to Donald Trump, and they'll see the old sort of stale agenda of the Republican Party, the globalist agenda the Republican Party had back uh, before Donald Trump emerged as its leader. So if you have the voters who don't like the old Republican Party, which includes a lot of the populist voters who supported Trump in 2016, and then you have the voters who don't like Donald Trump, which includes a large proportion of everyone else, you wind up with a party that may have no support on either side. Let's suggest for a moment that uh, it's the other way around and that Tommy Tuville's success, in a way, shows that Trump has so much personal appeal, perhaps, that he's able to bring voters with him, regardless of the ideology, in many ways. No, I don't think that was the case in the Alabama primary uh, yesterday. So, first of all, turnout was quite low, although that's to be expected given the COVID-19 crisis. And it does look as if this was a election among Republican Party regulars. It was not something that brought in, you know, sort of new populist demographics or other elements that had not been part of the party before. But, you know, I don't think Donald Trump is necessarily quite as much of the focus of what happened in Alabama as conventional wisdom would have us believe. And two points I make in my article, you know, on the one hand, it's kind of difficult for someone like Jeff Sessions, after having been a senator for 20 years, to kind of walk away and then suddenly come back. Because that old relationship, that 20 years of cohabitation with the voters of Alabama, once you separate from that, it's like a divorce after 20 years. I mean, it's just very hard, even though you've got some old feelings. In some ways, those old feelings actually make it even more difficult to rekindle what had come before. And uh, Jeff Sessions was fairly late in getting into the primary. There were already a number of other candidates, including Tuberville, who had declared their intentions to run and had already built up networks of support. Beyond all that, you know, I mean, we do have some other precedents of candidates who tried to go home again, so to speak, uh, in the past uh, few weeks here, who have failed to do so. So I, I mentioned uh, John Huntsman, the former governor of Utah, who tried to run for the Republican Party nomination for Utah governor again this year, after having served as Donald Trump's ambassador to Russia, and after having served, in fact, as Obama's ambassador to China, you know, a decade or so ago. And Huntsman also got defeated in a primary. Again, I think there's an illustration there of just how difficult it can be for these old established political leaders who had overwhelming support back when they remained in office. But it's just very difficult to walk away from that and then come back and not have voters kind of look at you as a stranger when you do so. Is it that uh, Republicans, grassroots Republican supporters in states like Alabama, they regard you as just a bit toxic once you've been to Washington? There's sort of that you're... You're stained with Washington once you've been there. Well, in Sessions's case, I don't know that Washington itself would have been such a stain, except for the fact that Sessions's tenure as attorney general wound up being something that you know Republicans in general, and certainly Donald Trump in particular, uh, look upon with great disdain. So there is that particular element, you know, of yes, he went to Washington, and then what would he what did he do when he got to Washington? He wound up severely disappointing the president. So voters were, you know, they took that into consideration as not only a departure to Washington, but also as basically a failure once he had arrived in Washington. But even beyond that, I think it's just severing the old established relationship that you know when you have something that's gone on for twenty years and you walk away from it, voters feel a little bit like you know it's time for them to move on 
just as it was time for Sessions to move on in 2017. And there's an interesting bit in your piece that you published today on Spectator USA where you talk about Trump's personality being the very reason he won, but also the reason he fell out with Sessions and that for him, Sessions had betrayed his loyalty and it doesn't matter to Trump that they appear to have some sort of ideological or, or political agreement. They're both hardline on immigration. It doesn't matter to Trump. If you've betrayed him as a human being, he will go after you, he will destroy you. A lot of immigration hawks and uh, economic nationalists were disappointed that Donald Trump couldn't find it in his heart to forgive uh, Jeff Sessions because Sessions is someone who is very clearly aligned with the president's issues on trade and on immigration, and for that matter, on foreign policy as well. And these were Trump's signature issues back in uh, 2016. But as I point out in my article, the very thing that made Donald Trump willing to completely buck the Republican Party establishment and reject its party line on free trade and on you know, a relatively soft approach to immigration and on you know, foreign intervention in the Iraq war is the fact that once Donald Trump makes up his mind about something, once he has decided for himself where he stands on an issue, he is pretty much immovable. He, at that point, is willing to say no to absolutely anyone, and he's not engaging in sort of political calculation to see whether his views on foreign policy or on trade or on immigration are popular, because he's decided on them, and he's, at that point, psychologically invested in them to the point that he will not change. And I think the same thing applied when it came to Jeff Sessions. He made up his mind about Jeff Sessions as a person. He made up his mind about his ability to accomplish things and about his character as an individual. And when Donald Trump had made up his mind and committed his mind to that judgment, it was unchangeable thereafter. And he was not going to engage in political calculation to say, well, you know, Sessions may have disappointed me as attorney general, but in fact, he would be a very valuable ally if he were to return to the Senate. That's simply not the kind of careful calculus, kind of nitpicking calculus in some ways that other politicians might engage in, but Donald Trump does not. And so on the one hand, you know, that kind of firmness is what has made Donald Trump a singular figure and someone who's willing to change the Republican Party's views on a number of key issues. But it also means that he can be rather inflexible when it comes to something like these personal judgments about a former ally like Jeff Sessions. These economic nationalists, immigration hawks, foreign policy doves, whatever you want to call them, who, who support Sessions and like Trump because they seem to be representing a similar type of politics... I mean, how will they feel about the fact that Trump endorses someone like Tommy Tuberville, who's a, an ex-football coach, who doesn't seem to have any real grounding in the same type of politics? There are mixed feelings. You know, a lot of Donald Trump's populist supporters do feel very strongly that they agree with the president about Jeff Sessions and the way Sessions conducted himself with respect to the Russia investigation. So, you know, you actually have a number of populists who have just as dark a view of Jeff Sessions as the president himself does. There are others, on the other hand, especially those who've been fighting, you know, battles over immigration and trade from even before Donald Trump became president. So a lot of the more old time, in some ways, hardline immigration hawks and economic nationalists, they are disappointed. And you have people like Ann Coulter, for example, who have been quite outspokenly critical of President Trump for failing to support Jeff Sessions. Ann Coulter, you know, isn't alone in this. I mean, she speaks for a number of other sort of long-time nationalist conservatives. I suppose it boils down to, if you're a Trump supporter, how big a betrayal you think Sessions recusing himself from the Trump-Russia inquiry was. And I think there seems to be the sort of the Trump loyalists who think anything that upsets the president uh, or makes his life more difficult is bad because of the enemy, the never-Trumpers and the Democrats. 
And then you have people who see that, in a legal sense, Sessions made the right decision. He, he had to recuse himself from the inquiry. What, what do you think? Well, right. So you have really three kinds of thoughts among Republicans on this issue. On the one hand, you have those who say that Jeff Sessions didn't have any choice other than to recuse himself. Then you have the people who say, well, Sessions, you know, um, should have just defied expectations and failed to recuse himself and tried to terminate the investigation as attorney general. If Sessions had done what Donald Trump wanted him to do, you would have had such a bad reaction in Congress that you would have had enormous pressure for the Justice Department to appoint an independent counsel anyway. So I suspect that really it would have amounted to the same difference. But there are you know, many people who don't feel that way, who really do think that Jeff Sessions' actions uh, made a substantial difference. And then I would say there's a third group of people who maybe don't have fully informed or you know, strongly held views on the issue itself, but who do simply want to go along with what the president says. And you know, among uh, the president's critics, there are these people who say that everyone who supports Trump is just a zombie who does automatically whatever the president wants. I don't think that's true here. I think not only do you see a number of immigration hawks and economic nationalists and other people who just look at the you know, Russia investigation and say Sessions would not have been able to terminate it, not only are there people who you know, like the president, who want to vote for the president again, but who think he's wrong about Sessions, there are also people who agree with the president about Sessions, but who agree with him basically for their own reasons, because their analysis leads them to that conclusion, not simply because the president says so. And I think it's only a third category of people who really do just kind of follow along with whatever signal the president gives them. And let's look ahead at how this primary last night might indicate what's going to happen in the election in November. This cyborg you talk about, which the danger for the Republican Party is that it represents all the things that populist voters hated about the Republican Party, as well as being all the things that other types of voters dislike about Donald Trump. And if this is to be the face of the Republican Party that presents itself in November, it doesn't look good, does it, as an election-winning proposition? Donald Trump is not running the campaign he ran in 2016. And the 2020 Donald Trump campaign so far has not been very imaginative or creative. Back in 2016, you never knew what the candidate Trump was going to say or do. And whatever he did say or do wound up changing the news cycle that day and that week. So far with this campaign cycle, the campaign has been much more reactive and has run a much more conventional Republican kind of effort. You know, they'll attack Joe Biden as a socialist. They will try to outflank Joe Biden from the left sometimes. So one Republican flack earlier this week was tweeting out old pictures of Joe Biden at a Washington Redskins game. The Redskins have now changed their name because it was politically incorrect. And uh, so, you know, some Republican flack was tweeting out images from like 20 or 30 years ago of Joe Biden at a sporting event, you know, with the name of the uh, team as it was then. Who is this supposed to appeal to? Now, the, the idea that they're going for there is to try to dampen the enthusiasm for Biden among progressive voters. And there is a weakness on Biden's part there because voters just don't seem very enthusiastic to come out and support Biden, even though, you know, if you poll them, they say they do support him. On the flip side, however, if you look at what just happened in Alabama with the Tuberville and Sessions race, that too had very low turnout. So the question is, maybe Republican efforts to demoralize Democrats are having a little bit of an effect. But the question is also, um, how is the morale standing up on the Republican side? Candidates like Tommy Tuberville, I think there's a, a question mark about that. It's also dangerously schizophrenic in a way, because the Republicans seem to be trying to portray Biden on the one hand as a sort of Trojan horse for the radical woke left, and on the other hand as a, a sort of politically incorrect 
dolt. I can't see how those two messages will square in people's heads. Well, they really don't. Not only do they not square with one another, but also if you're splitting your energies between these two different narratives you're trying to promote, that means you're not putting 100% of your effort into either one of them. And, you know, I think that the, you know, idea that a Biden administration will not be able to say no to the radical left is a much more powerful pitch than the idea that Joe Biden has a tough on crime record from 20 or 30 years ago that is now, you know, a bad fit for the era of wokeness. But, you know, the Republicans could actually try that second narrative if they really wanted to. But if they were to do so, I think they would have to just, you know, commit everything possible to it. And if they're not going to do that, they should just kind of let it fall and work instead on this idea that Biden represents a party that has become very, very radical and that, you know, he's not going to say no to any kind of radical leftist proposal that comes along during a Biden administration. But, you know, beyond that, Donald Trump succeeded in 2016 by basically saying, All of American politics was on the wrong track. It was on the wrong track in terms of the foreign policy that Hillary Clinton and George W. Bush had both supported. Joe Biden supported it as well, by the way. It was on the wrong track in terms of immigration, which was being pursued without any kind of uh, legal process that was sufficiently effective. And it was on the wrong track with regard to trade and how uh, middle America was basically losing well-paying manufacturing jobs. So Donald Trump had some themes that no other candidate had really talked about especially not any nominee of a major party, for generations back in 2016. And this year, in 2020, you're not hearing a lot of that. And in fact, I was kind of uh, intrigued to see that Joe Biden has recently put out uh, some reports and studies you know, supporting economic nationalism. He seems to actually be stealing some of Donald Trump's themes from the 2016 election, while Trump and the Republican Party are kind of trying to just you know, sleepwalk through the 2020 election Previously, they were hoping that the economy would save them. Now I think they're hoping that you know, riots in the streets are going to save them. But either way, it's a very passive way of conducting a presidential campaign. Have you been surprised by the seeming intelligence of the Biden campaign? Or do you think they're just getting lucky through Biden's strange combination of senility and invisibility? They have been lucky. And I think what I underestimated from the beginning was the extent to which baby boomers and, in fact, a lot of the um, sort of uh, industrial uh, state baby boomers, uh, you know, places like Pennsylvania, really would feel a personal affinity with Joe Biden because he reminds them of themselves, reminds them of an older uncle. In some ways, Biden represents a John F. Kennedy who has now reached, you know, almost the age of 80. He is, you know, a kind of ethnic Catholic Democrat not a religious Catholic, really, not a very strong one, certainly. But he just has this aura of being the kind of working class, Catholic, quasi-Irish, you know, American Democrat that reminds people of a Democratic Party that they were much more comfortable voting for, not only in the days of someone like JFK, but also in the days of, you know, another phony like Bill Clinton. So I think there's a, a generation that looks at Joe Biden and sees something that isn't threatening at all and sees something that actually reminds them not only of themselves, but also reminds them of Bill Clinton and of JFK. There's a certain power to that. And in fact, the interesting thing is not only does I think does this resonate with a certain cadre of older white voters, but it seems to resonate with a lot of black voters as well. And I think just as black voters tended to be fairly favorably disposed towards Bill Clinton, I think they also look at uh, Joe Biden and they just kind of like the style of politics that he represents. He doesn't seem to be, you know, trying too hard to be politically correct. He seems to be a kind of down-to-earth guy. And there's actually a sense in which uh, a lot of black voters are not the woke college activist types. 
they are rather, you know, sort of down to earth voters themselves. And so Joe Biden is a much more formidable candidate than I expected him to be. And if Biden seems to be promising, it certainly looks by the the sort of staff we can expect his administration to have. He seems to be promising uh, an Obama era restoration. Is there a nostalgia for that or is it more uh, a nostalgia for some sort of, as you say, Kennedy era, Irish Catholic? There's an Irish Catholic appeal that Biden has that probably people outside of America don't really understand. I really do think it is that sort of Kennedy and uh, Bill Clinton style appeal. The weird thing about the Obama years is that right now, all the woke activists are looking back at the Barack Obama record and they don't like it because they see that Obama actually did deport a lot of people. He would talk to black voters and talk to you know voters about racial issues in a way which said, you know, we need everyone to work together and we need everyone to just kind of work hard. Whereas the woke ideologues of today say, we don't need to you know, talk about hard work. We need to talk about blaming white people for anything that's going wrong, not only with black people, but with you know, sort of psychologically disturbed white people who are the you know, sort of primary support group, it seems to be, for so much of the ideological left, people of very great sort of emotional turbulence. And they feel as if you know, white America is responsible for this emotional disturbance that so many white liberals themselves feel. And they feel betrayed by Barack Obama because he didn't you know, say the kinds of things that white liberals wanted him to say. He said things that were much more middle of the road. To the extent there is some nostalgia for uh, uh, Obama, it's actually the idea of Obama as the quasi-moderate, or at least the temperamental moderate. And a lot of people are projecting that onto Joe Biden as well. Now, it seems to me Donald Trump is not finished here. If you look at the battleground states, Trump could just about afford to lose one of those states. He certainly can't afford to lose both of them. And then he needs to reverse uh, his deficits in places like Michigan, you know, and Wisconsin. And in fact, you know, he's even trailing a little bit in places like uh, North Carolina and Texas. My suspicion is that, uh, you know, Texas will ultimately be quite solidly for Trump. I think North Carolina will also wind up going for Trump. But in places like uh, Michigan and uh, Wisconsin, Trump really does need to turn his five-point deficits into leads. Now, he can do that. There's still plenty of time. And this is one of the sort of worst moments for the Trump campaign, because we're still deep in the COVID-19 crisis. And, you know, the uh, recent protests over the George Floyd killing are still fresh in our minds. And really, Donald Trump has not had the opportunity to go back on offense in the past couple of weeks here. And once he does, you're going to see those deficits in the polls start to be erased. And you're going to see a very competitive race going into November. Like I say, Pennsylvania and Florida are both serious warning signs. That means it's going to be, I think, a very close race. Donald Trump doesn't have the kind of lead that an incumbent would want to have going into a November election. Very strange things have happened in American politics recently, and it's also not uncommon in re-election campaigns of you know, presidents past to be trailing at one point or another. So we'll see whether Donald Trump can make up uh, a great deal of distance in Florida and Pennsylvania, and whether he can uh, you know, flip five or six points in places like uh, uh, Wisconsin. One big moment that Trump could use as an attack point would be uh, Biden's nomination of vice president, which we think is coming up probably by the beginning of August. Because so far, Biden has managed this strange balancing act where nobody quite knows who he is and sort of woke people can believe in him, moderates can believe in him and so on. But depending who he picks as his vice president, his campaign could start to look far more vulnerable if Trump is able to get on the offensive against it. But again, I worry that that is a very passive approach from the Trump campaign, that you're waiting for your enemy to do something that's going to then give you 
uh, an advantage rather than creating an advantage for yourself. So it's true that, uh, you know, certainly Republican attacks upon whoever Joe Biden picks are going to be very predictable. But, you know, all of the press coverage that Joe Biden's going to get as soon as he announces his pick is going to be overwhelmingly favorable. First of all, because he's already signaled that he's going to pick a woman. And, you know, if he picks, you know, a non-white woman, there's going to be an additional sort of media orgy about how wonderful that is. And in any case, uh, you can expect Joe Biden to actually get a boost in the polls initially when the pick is uh, announced. I think it's very unlikely that he's going to announce someone that's going to cause, you know, massive disappointment in the media and that's going to uh, therefore hurt him in the short run. Now, in the long run, yes, it's Kamala Harris or if it's Elizabeth Warren, there's plenty of, you know, sort of opportunity for Republicans to dig into the record of those senators and go after them. But uh, I actually think it's going to be a very weak approach, not only because it's passive, but also because it's not setting the agenda. I mean, it really is passive. And beyond that, there's this sense that, you know, Donald Trump in 2016 was a very fresh phenomenon. And I think a lot of people responded to that and they went for him because they wanted to change Washington. And looking at 2020, Joe Biden's obviously not a fresh face, but Donald Trump's now been in office for four years. So it's very hard for him uh, to present himself as freshness also. Whoever the vice president candidate that Biden picks is going to be in some sense, you know, the sort of designated future of American politics. That does create a certain opening for Republican attacks. I think a, a very effective attack on Biden might be that, you know, this is a guy who really, given his age, can only realistically be expected to be a one-term president if he, you know, wins in November. Do Americans really want to elect two presidents at the same time, Biden and then his, you know, running mate as someone who, you know, might succeed him if he dies in office or who might succeed him if he, you know, declines to run in 2024 and uh, the VP is the obvious nominee for the Democratic Party? Americans have never been presented with that kind of um, option, at least not, uh, you know, since the Second World War. And uh, I think they would look kind of skeptically at that. I think they want a president who's willing to kind of go the distance. And they may say they would rather finish the job with Donald Trump than let Joe Biden do a kind of half-assed job and then leave it to some new person to pick up after him. There does seem to be quite a lot of exhaustion around Trump at the moment. And as somebody, I think um, it's fair to say, you were quite excited by the possibilities of Trumpism. Are you now a bit deflated um, at how things have gone in the last year or so? Do you think the, the opportunities that 2016 presented have been spurned? Well, no, I certainly wouldn't say, you know, the opportunities have been lost or that, uh, you know, I feel deflated about all of this because, uh, you know, the idea of Donald Trump winning in the first place was a, a tremendous surprise and, uh, you know, a great uh, boost for people who, you know, agreed with Trump's critique of foreign policy and agreed with Donald Trump's critique of globalism. And all of those things are in a better position now, whatever the shortcomings of the administration, all those things are still better off now than they would have been certainly under Hillary Clinton, but really under any other Republican uh, as well. Now, you know, there have been missed opportunities. I think Donald Trump back in 2017, he could have uh, really sharply redefined the Republican Party's agenda in Congress. He could have said instead of fighting Obamacare over and over again, and instead of, you know, primarily pursuing a tax cut, we're going to try to do things that basically wrong foot the Democrats. We're going to combine, for example, some immigration restriction legislation with some major uh, job initiatives and infrastructure efforts. Democrats, I think, would have been very um, perplexed if they'd been presented with that agenda. They would not have known what to do the way they knew exactly what to do when given uh, another tax cut to demagogically run against in 2018. And uh, Donald Trump in 2017 had an opportunity to basically give Republicans a new uh, set of policy directives. 
And because that didn't happen, the Republican Party in Congress under Mitch McConnell and under uh, Paul Ryan, who was still speaker at the time, just defaulted to the same agenda that it had during the Obama years. And that's what created what I've now called the cyborg that is half Donald Trump and half the old Republican Party machine, the old you know, sort of establishment or the old sort of Paul Ryan kind of approach to politics. Donald Trump is still half of that cyborg. He can still exert some control over it. And I think over time, you've seen with his personnel appointments that he's exerting more and more control over it. You know, he tried a number of experiments with some very inexperienced people like Rex Tillerson as Secretary of State. Then he tried some experiments with neocons like John Bolton as his uh, national security advisor. And I think only now in this uh, last year of the first term, have you seen Donald Trump start to appoint people who really are fundamentally solid Trumpians to his administration. And I expect if he wins re-election, you're going to see a continuation of that and a much stronger agenda than you saw in the first four years. Uh, the difficulty, unfortunately, will be at that point, Republicans will almost certainly not have the House of Representatives, and there's a chance that they will lose the U.S. Senate either this November or perhaps you know in 2022 in the midterm elections. It's a time for Donald Trump to concoct a new uh, agenda. Energy and imagination and creativity and vigor are the things that uh, saw Donald Trump, Trump to victory in uh, 2016. And if he retaps into those resources, he will get victory in 2020 as well. The one thing that will lead him to surefire defeat is simply running on a traditional Republican playbook. And unfortunately, I've seen too much of that with the campaign so far. And I think that helps to account a great deal for why Donald Trump is lagging in the polls right now. Obvious cyborgs do not win elections. I think we can conclude. Niccolo Machiavelli says, uh, you can either be wholly good or wholly bad, but trying to do things a little bit good and a little bit bad leads you down a path to destruction. And uh, the Republican Party is trying to be a little bit Donald Trump and a little bit, yeah, we're still not Trumpians. We still like NATO. We still like NAFTA and things like that. And uh, that's not going to fly. Uh, that's going to turn off absolutely everyone. Because again, populist voters look at this and they look at the promises that Donald Trump made in 2016, a promise for a border wall, a promise to bring the jobs back, the manufacturing jobs back, some of which has actually happened. But a lot of that has been muddied by the fact that the Republican Party in Congress pursued you know, a more traditional agenda. And it's defensible. You know, I, the, the tax cut had a lot of benefits. I'm actually talking to you today on the day when Americans are filing their taxes. July 15 is our new tax deadline uh, for this year because of the COVID crisis. Almost all Americans got a, a tax cut out of this you know, Republican uh, tax bill. And that's great. But as we've seen, the magic has worn off. This is not the 1980s anymore. And a tax cut is not the thing that gets you, you know, elected in the first place and doesn't win you a re-election. So you can pursue it, but you really have to have an agenda that's defined more concretely by jobs, by a retrenchment of our position in the world, and by uh, taking much more seriously the idea of citizenship and uh, limits on immigration here at home. That was the winning agenda for Trump in 2016, and uh, it would be the winning agenda for him in 2020 if he can get out from underneath this rock of, uh, you know, just trying to react to whatever Joe Biden's doing and just trying to, you know, sort of coast a re-election on a very standard Republican agenda of saying, hey, things have been pretty good during my years. You know, we had some pretty good economic numbers before the COVID crisis, so I should simply be re-elected by default. Dan, fascinating as always to talk to you, and I hope you'll join us on several occasions before the election in November. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Americano. And I'd like to encourage you all to give us your feedback positive comments or constructive comments only, please, to podcast at spectator.co.uk and say anything you like there as long as it's reasonably polite.
The Spectators podcast now have a newsletter. Sign up for free at spectator.co.uk forward slash podcast dash highlights to get the Spectators podcast highlights in your inbox every Monday.